0: Hello, and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series for patients where we talk about HIV. In previous episodes, we discussed PrEP. We've talked about getting clinical care for HIV, and today we focus on treating HIV uh, itself. So we welcome Dr. Joe Eron, Professor of Medicine and Vice Chief of our Division of Infectious Disease. And while he looks remarkably uh, young, he has (laughs) a very long history of treating patients uh, with HIV. So, Dr. Iran, welcome.
1: Yeah, welcome, Dr. Falk. Thanks for inviting me. This is really going to be fun.
0: When you have a patient who's recently been found that they have HIV uh, and you're about to begin treatment, what kind of things do people talk to you about? What concerns do they have?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's still so much kind of misimpression or bad information or poor information about HIV. I mean, patients still come in thinking, I've got a fatal disease. I'm gonna die from this. And that's the most common thing.
0: In twenty eighteen. In twenty eighteen. Amazing.
1: Right. It's 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 amazing and, and um I think so I spend a lot of time talking to them about how they're actually gonna live. You know, we have therapy, it's pretty straightforward. It's not that hard anymore. And I really try to talk to them about what they're going to do in their life to kind of either change what's happened that got them into the situation. But lots of times we have people that have been infected for years sometimes and they're just diagnosed and they've kind of moved past that part of their life and they're devastated. They think, oh, you know, I kind of escaped my bad behavior from, you know, 10 years ago or my my risky behavior from 10 years ago and they think oh my god i didn't escape i can't believe i have this and so dealing with that fear that you know i'm going to die and then the fear the other thing is i can't possibly let anyone know
0: the embarrassment
1: yeah embarrassment stigma exactly that that those are the two biggest things the fear of the disease itself and the fear of being isolated and just not being able to let anyone know about what's happened to them.
0: In reality, though, the therapy is remarkably good.
1: Right. I mean, the therapy now um, is for almost every patient that comes in that's newly diagnosed, they can be treated with one pill once a day. Right. It's a combination pill. It's got multiple medicines in it, but it's one pill once a day. And they all pills have side effects, as you know, but, but they tend to be pretty mild. And literally, I tell people, if you take it, you will respond. And the issues really are getting people to be able to take it, which is, you know, it sounds like, oh, anybody can take one pill once a day for, for a near you know, fatal disease. But that's, that's not so easy. Right. So they, they need to take the pill. And if they have a problem, they need to communicate, right, to come in to say, I, this isn't working for me. But, d- but most people do pretty well.
0: How do you help with the stigma issue?
1: Yeah. The stigma issue is a lot harder. Uh, it, it helps. You know, it's funny that there, there, there are data that suggest if someone comes to their first HIV appointment with someone else, they do so much better because they've already been able to tell somebody something. So I, I think dealing with the stigma, I ask them if there's someone they can bring to their appointment with them, someone that I can talk to, you know, a partner, a brother, a sister, a parent or, or, or a child, but I think that the stigma really is a huge problem.
0: Having an advocate, though, regardless of the disease, yes. in the room with you is always a good idea.
1: Yeah. No, I think that, I mean, for anybody listening to this podcast, that's one piece of medical information is, boy, any time you encounter the healthcare system, to have someone who's your an advocate who can listen with you. Because I hear half the things you say. Um, so <laughs> mostly I hear, try to hear the good things that you say. But, you know, it's stressful. It's hard. You right. don't, you don't know what people hear when you talk to them. And right. having another set of ears there is a really big right. difference. It really helps.
0: So when should someone with HIV start treatment? Is there a magic moment?
1: Yeah, there there used to be a magic moment. We used to argue all the time about, you know, which... A stage of a disease? Should we start treatment? And in part, it was because we were worried that one, our treatments in the past were more toxic than we wanted them to be. They had more side effects. And the other thing is we worried that the virus would become resistant, so we would wait. And that's pretty much over. Um, Mike Cohen, who who works with both of us, helped show that really starting therapy as early as possible is beneficial to patients. So, so really... Um, we try to get people on therapy within one or two visits after seeing them. But there are places in the country where they're actually starting treatment at the patient's first visit. Because there's some evidence that if you give people a therapy, they, they can embrace it. That this is a serious illness. This is something I should be doing. You know, why wait? Right. So we don't wait now. We, we start right away. First visit. First visit. <clears throat> in our clinic, it's usually the second visit. Because we have to organize how they're going to get their medicine to make sure their insurance is um, uh, together. We might need to use our Ryan White program, which is a federal program that helps uh, patients get medication. So it's usually the second visit we start.
0: And the fear of resistant virus. Yeah. Has that completely gone away?
1: No, no, it's not gone, but it's diminished. We've studied this in our clinic actually pretty carefully. And you can see the proportion of patients with resistance declining over time. But there is transmitted resistance. So some patients show up uh, having been infected with a virus that's resistant. But um, for the most part, we can deal with that very, very easily. With other drugs. With other drugs, right. We get a resistance test at baseline so we can check to see what would be the best therapy for an individual patient. And we we have enough drugs now that that's really not an issue. And it's... It's good. In a way, our trainees, our fellows know much less about resistance now than our trainees from, you know, five or 10 years ago because they're just not seeing it as much. The HIV virus is tricky. So I I would never say resistance is not a problem, but it's a much, much smaller problem.
0: What do you tell a person who says, look, I've been living with HIV for the last X number of years. I'm feeling fine. I... I'm not going to infect anybody else. I'm living by myself. Uh, so what are the consequences if I don't receive treatment?
1: Yeah, right. That's an excellent question. And you do hear that because a lot of people don't want to take medicines. They don't want to be reminded that every day they have HIV infection. And, and what we now know is that not only are there these AIDS consequences that people hear about, the AIDS-defining illnesses, But things like kidney disease, which obviously you're an expert in, um, liver disease, heart disease, are all more likely in patients that uh, have their virus replicating, not suppressed. Turns out there's quite a bit of immune activation. Their immune systems are revved up. They have a lot of inflammation, which affects blood vessels, which affects the kidney, which affects the liver. So... um, That patient that you described, that takes a little bit of effort. You know, I have to see that person back and try to talk to them about these other consequences of having a virus replicating in your body. Right. And that's, you know, people can sometimes visualize that. You can show them the numbers. You know, we can measure viral loads. We can say, oh, look, you have 10,000 copies of the virus in your blood. And sometimes that helps. But I I do get that from people, and it does take a little bit of effort sometimes to convince them that it's – if they're feeling well, that it's better to go on treatment.
0: You have to ask, though. I mean, I take care of people with high blood pressure. Right. And you only know if you have high blood pressure if you stick your arm in a blood pressure cuff. Right. And the reality is you're going to take a blood pressure medicine or two or three sometimes – and that seems like most people usually do it. Right. Why wouldn't you expect then most people usually being willing to take a single drug?
1: The vast majority are willing. If you look at our clinic, the goal of therapy now is to get the virus level below what we can measure, right? And that's not because we're all just number crazy, but the the virus is like um like a slot machine. Like it's turning, 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 turning. And if you can slow that slot machine down, you can end up preventing that virus to, from becoming resistant. So if you can get replication down to zero or close to zero, then you won't become resistant to the therapy. So if you look at our clinic, between 85 and 90% of all the patients in the clinic have a viral load that's below what we can measure. Which and makes, which
0: is protective which for is protective everybody for them, around and, and f- it's
1: for protective for other people, right? So, yeah. so being undetectable means that you are virtually untransmissible. In fact, that's what the CDC now says: undetectable means untransmissible. Yeah, that's just fantastic. Yeah. So,
0: how long does it take for these drugs to uh, to work?
1: That's the amazing thing. I mean, if you take them, they work incredibly well. So, if your viral load, let's say, is a hundred thousand. By four weeks, it should be 1,000 or less. I mean, it shoots down dramatically fast. So I know, for example, when I see a patient, if they come back four weeks later and their virus level hasn't really changed, either they didn't get the medicine, they didn't take the medicine, or I gave them the wrong medicine or the wrong instruction. So that virus level is a, is a barometer. It's, it, it happens very quickly. The immune system recovers more slowly, but the virus suppression happens quickly.
0: There are multiple different kinds of HIV drugs. Absolutely. They work differently. Mm-hmm. Help me understand a little bit how they work.
1: Yeah. Um. So the virus essentially has to hijack the machinery of the cell. So it's like someone coming into a factory and kind of taking over that factory. And But the virus has like three key steps where it uses its own information. It has to change its genetic material, its, its um, blueprint from RNA to DNA. So if you block that, block reverse transcription, that's one step. Then it has to integrate. It has to get into the patient's DNA, into that chromosome. And that's another virus step. So we block that. We block the integrase. And then finally, when the virus has to come out of the cell, it has to take its proteins and... Um, construct the capsule, the thing that carries the virus genetic material, the, the virus blueprint, and that's done with a protease. So three enzymes, reverse transcriptase, integrase, and protease, those are our main weapons.
0: In one pill?
1: In one pill. Yeah, usually usually it's, uh, it's two of one and one of the other, and you, we kind of mix and match, but um, we're actually getting pretty good at this yeah. over time. Thank goodness.
0: And yeah. so let's say the person's viral load is undetectable. Mm-hmm. What's the lifespan?
1: Oh, the predictions now are, for example, if someone 25 years old starts on therapy and can stay on therapy, the predicted lifespan based on these complicated models is 50 years, 50 to 60 years. So, so 75, 80. It's not doesn't quite reach the normal life expectancy. We think in part because there's some intrinsic damage to the immune system that happens uh, in that period before you get on therapy. So, there's there's probably um, we still have work to do to try to get people's immune systems kind of back to perfect health. And, of course, the longer you've waited to get right. on therapy, the harder it is to get it back. So that's a that's a big issue. Arguing for early,
0: early uh, Strongly training.
1: arguing for early therapy. So right? how do you
0: actually pick? You said you can mix and match. How, uh, how do you actually figure out what you're mixing and matching? Well,
1: we've done uh, – one of the things that I've done, and, and here at UNC we've done – is is really done those combination comparative trials. We've done really scores of them, maybe 60, 70, 80 trials. We were um, one of the very first sites that did that first cocktail study. You know, you've seen the pictures in Time magazine of the handful of pills. We were one of the first sites to do that cocktail study and show that it took three drugs together. And over the years, we've done multiple refinements of Comparative studies. I'm really proud of the work that our collective research group, both here and and kind of globally, has done to really refine the right combinations. I mean, there there still may be better ones, but literally, when we do a study now, after a year, 92 or 3% of the patients are suppressed on the uh, medication we pick. 5% 5% go off study for all the reasons that have nothing to do with the treatment, you know, they move, they they quit the study and 1 or 2% fail. That's we, just we, remarkable. We can't we can't you can't do better. No, so we're that's we're remarkable. just we're basically trying to refine toxicities and make sure people are on the safest medicine possible.
0: What kind of questions then do patients ask you about these meds?
1: Well, they always ask how long will I need to take it? And that's one of the hardest conversations because I, I say as long as you live, probably. Now, you're going to maybe talk later to the Dr. Margolis, who's our uh, great hope for curing HIV. And and the patients do ask about that. Will, will there ever be a cure? But so they ask about how long they'll need to take it. And then they like, you know, they, they ask about side effects. They ask about things, that, you know, that are common in your life. Can I take it with food? Do I have to take it at night? You know, what if I miss by an hour? You know, those are the hypercompulsive ones. And those are the kind of things that people ask. They're, they're worried about taking it for a long time, and they're worried about side effects that will impact their life.
0: And what side effects are they?
1: Um, you know, right now, the ones that patients worry about are really pretty uncommon now. We used to give people medicines that they had to take every six hours, like on the clock and set a timer. They'd have to drink a couple of gallons of water. They'd have nausea. They'd have diarrhea. Now the side effects are pretty minor. People do get some stomach upset, but that's a a minor one. The things that I worry about are ones that they don't actually necessarily feel. Uh, Some of our drugs do impact the kidney, so we have to monitor kidney function. One class of our drugs raises cholesterol a bit, so we have to keep our eyes on that. I mean... If you had told me 25 years ago I'd be worrying about my patient's cholesterol, I would have said, you're out of your mind. I, uh, now that's what I do. Now and I worry apples, about cholesterol. And kidney function, which <laughs> of course function. everybody needs to worry right. about and, that. I, and blood pressure. I worry about all those things now. It's amazing. It's good. It's yeah. great.
0: What So what happens if somebody forgets to take their pill?
1: Ah, now that's an issue. One of the things that has been so successful in our drug development is we have drugs that have pretty long half-lives. Um, so probably missing a pill here or there especially once they've gotten their virus suppressed is not as dangerous as it used to be. We used to say that that you had to be 90% adherent to be successful. But I can promise you our clinic with 90% of people suppressed 90% of our, you know, 2000 patients are not taking their pills every single day because they're all human like me and you, and we we miss now and then.
0: But missing for an hour or two. No, no, not a problem. Those days are over. The
1: issues are people that either lose access to their therapy or uh, somehow become either compromised because of uh, life situations like depression, substance use, Insurance issues Something or else housing, happens. right? Something happens, and it's those big gaps in therapy that matter, where they stop for a week or a month, and as the drug level goes down, that Hampstor wheel oil. starts spinning, yeah. right? And the virus, once it starts replicating, it can uh, you get mutations, and some of those mutations lead to resistance.
0: And that's, of course, what one's trying to avoid Absolutely. at all costs. Right. And right. what do you do if somebody does get resistant so, disease? So
1: if they, if it turns out someone's been on therapy. And their virus level comes up. Well, first we get a resistance test. And we're very, um, we have a lot of information about what drugs work against these specific resistant viruses. So the the problem there is the therapies get more complicated. There aren't as many single tablets that you can give to someone that has, you know, a couple of, uh, resistant to a couple of different of those classes that I talked about uh, reverse transcriptase, integrase, protease. So then the therapy gets a little more complicated and it's a little harder to take. And so you're in that space where someone had trouble taking a simple therapy and then you got to give them a more complicated therapy. And then they need more support. They need phone support. We have a a really uh, strong social work and pharmacy staff in our clinic that will call people, that will help them with refills. Um, But that's when it gets tricky.
0: In reality, though, the message has got to be Start early. Start early. Take it every day. And take just it every day. Don't think about it.
1: And, and try not to think about it. What I tell people, if they're a, a woman and they're childbearing, do you want to have kids? It's okay. If they already have kids, I say save for college. Have yeah. that child go farther as, as you want them. And if they're a little older, I say save for retirement. You can live a normal life. That's what I try to tell them as best as I can.
0: Right. Let me just ask the obvious other question. So, okay, you've made tremendous progress, and we're all hoping that there will be a cure. But on the, in the near horizon, mm-hmm. is there going to be every-other-day therapy, or is there going to be uh, an opportunity to stop?
1: Yeah, super question. So there, there are a couple of things that we're doing. One is there's a move now to develop longer-acting therapies, so injectable therapies. In fact, we have a study going now where you can get an injection of two uh, drugs, and we've learned that if you're suppressed, two drugs work. And the study is comparing monthly injections with every other month injections. Wow! Now there, there uh, intramuscular injections are a little bit tough, but um, it's it's moving in that direction. There's another new drug that's recently been discovered that is. In- Incredibly potent, which means you can give very small amounts of it, and um, it's possible that this drug could actually be put in one of those devices that they use for um, uh, pregnancy prevention, for huh. contraception, one of those long-acting implanton or Nexplanon devices. So huh. we really are thinking about how we might be able to give people therapy on a quarterly basis or even a six-monthly basis. That would be amazing. Yeah, so That'd much be... like um, it's being done for osteoporosis. Started out as a pill, right, and then it was a monthly, and now some people get once-a-year infusions for their osteoporosis, so it's it's possible. That I mean, that's kind of the, the, the new frontier that we're really working on.
0: So just help me reflect for a moment. Now you're describing a medicine that you regularly could take once a day, you're describing in the near term that there may be drugs that you could use every other month or perhaps quarterly. Recycle back uh, 20, 25 years ago. What was it like then?
1: Yeah, I think, um, and this is something that obviously I'll never forget. When I first came here to UNC in 1992, I mean, we literally had people die every week. I mean, there was another person that we knew and took care of that, that died that week, and, and um we really were kind of caretakers and helping people through the last stages of a, of a fatal illness. And it, it's just been totally transformed. I mean, now it's rare that one of my patients dies, and sometimes they do. I, I recently had a patient die almost of old age. I mean, they had huh. cancer, but they are in their late 70s, almost 80 years old, and their family was around them. And, and, and they died from something other than HIV, and it was just incredible. Incredibly different. And, and, and that's what I'm hoping for all my patients. That die with your HIV, with but it. not from, from your HIV. HIV. Exactly. Yeah. That's a wonderful thought. Yep. Yeah, it is. Right.
0: I, uh, thank you, Dr. Uran, for a really informative discussion.
1: Yeah, this is really fun. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. And our next episode will be joined by Dr. David Wall for a discussion on managing your health and aging with HIV. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to The Chairs Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much.